you are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a money-making business by Alex Ferrari. For a free copy of the audiobook, head over to www.filmbizbook.com. Welcome to the Director Series Podcast, a show dedicated to deconstructing the work of some of cinema's most celebrated and influential film directors. I'm your host, Cameron Bile. Faith is a fundamental aspect of the human experience, providing the structure of the world's various religions and fundamentally shaping our perception of the exterior world around us. And yet, faith and religion are not the same thing. If religion is communal, structural, and organized, faith is personal, deeply intimate, private, and always in flux. Conflict can erupt when we conflate the two especially when otherwise well-meaning authorities dictate the paths that we must take on our individual journeys. Raised in the Roman Catholic tradition of Christianity, director Martin Scorsese has experienced this bitter conflict firsthand. The mystery of faith is a core tenet of his artistry, with the austere theatricality of Catholicism shaded by his natural curiosity and capacity for critical thought. As his faith has matured, the act of questioning, of digging deeper into the why behind the what, would serve to actually reinforce his convictions where they might otherwise sow doubt. As an adolescent, he aspired to the priesthood, until he discovered that the movie theater was his true church. As he developed into a filmmaker, the idea of delivering his own take on the story of Jesus Christ never strayed far from his mind. In 1972, on the set of his second feature, Boxcar Bertha, Scorsese was given a book by his lead actress, Barbara Hershey, Nikos Kazantzakis's The Last Temptation of Christ. Perhaps Scorsese subconsciously understood the hidden gravity of this otherwise fleeting interaction. It would take him six years to finish the book, ultimately finishing it in 1978 during a trip to Italy that would introduce him to his third wife, Isabella Rossellini, daughter to Roberto Rossellini, the auteur behind so many neorealist classics that would catalyze Scorsese's own calling. After finishing the novel, the story fixed itself inside Scorsese's mind as a project he could be passionate about pursuing. Catholicism maintains that Jesus was the Son of God on earth, both human and divine, and yet his humanity had never been truly explored in any meaningful way. The story of Christ's crucifixion, sacrificing himself to rid humanity of sin, is a powerful and inspiring one, albeit in the same way that theater or opera is powerful and inspiring. Perhaps owing to Scorsese's lifelong interest in the realism of documentary, he found himself drawn to Kazanstakis's exploration of Christ's humanity, his thoughts, hopes, and doubts, and, most potently, the desire to live a full, peaceful life without the burden of his divine parentage. The irony of Kazanstakis's take is that by focusing on his humanity, his godliness and his sacrifice could be appreciated more fully. Scorsese's own faith had certainly been bolstered by the idea, and he thought it only natural that a film version would do the same for countless others. The reality, however, would be far more torturous, a personal and artistic crucible that would gobble up years of Scorsese's life. After the King of Comedy's release, Scorsese was able to set up The Last Temptation of Christ at Paramount, 
where then-President Michael Eisner and head of production Jeffrey Katzenberg approved a budget of $12 million and a shooting schedule of 90 days. He would employ his taxi driver and Raging Bull screenwriter Paul Schrader to adapt the book, with subsequent rewrites performed uncredited by both himself and his longtime friend Jay Cox. Scorsese further busied himself by recruiting actor Aidan Quinn for the title role and scouting far-flung locales like Morocco and Israel, despite Eisner and Katzenberg pushing him to shoot in cost-effective but decidedly less authentic locations like San Francisco. Almost immediately, Scorsese was met with vociferous resistance from the religious right, as well as the studio's lack of confidence in Quinn's abilities. The initial $12 million budget soon ballooned to 16 and continued climbing. When Scorsese's producer Erwin Winkler asked Paramount for another $2 million, the studio declared that the project was no longer viable. That Scorsese had wanted to make the film in an attempt to, quote, get to know Jesus better, was not strong enough of an argument for the studio's commercial interests. They pulled the plug in the 11th hour, just before shooting was due to commence, and a heartbroken Scorsese was forced to move on to other projects, like After Hours and The Color of Money. As fate would have it, the dream wasn't dead, only deferred. The surprise success of After Hours had brought Scorsese into the orbit of CAA co-founder Mike Ovitz, who would become a major benefactor when he needed it most. In later years, Scorsese and Ovitz's partnership would result in key works like Goodfellas and The Age of Innocence, and even in the formation of the director's venerated film foundation, complete with an office in Manhattan. The color of money had largely come about thanks to Ovitz's influence and deal-making prowess. And after all those years of heartache and pain endured by Scorsese, all it would take for The Last Temptation of Christ to finally go forward was a dinner meeting between artist and executive. When asked what he wanted to make most in the entire world, and what the cost would be, Scorsese's answer of the last temptation of Christ at $7 million earned a simple, immediate yes. A mere three months later, Ovitz had set up a deal with Universal in Cineplex Odeon Theaters for the stated budget. The only caveats were that Scorsese was limited to a short 58-day shoot, and he would have to subsequently make a commercial film for the studio, ultimately realized as 1991's Cape Fear. And so it was that Scorsese finally found himself in Morocco during the fall of 1987, finally shooting the passion project he'd dreamt about since childhood, and that would come to stand as one of the most heartfelt and definitive films of his career. It's me the prophets preached about. God talked to me in the desert. He gave me a secret and told me to bring it to you. Didn't you hear me coming? There's a reason that the story of Jesus Christ from Nazareth is often dubbed the greatest story ever told. It is, quite simply, one of the most well-known and disseminated narratives in the entire history of humanity. The Last Temptation of Christ sticks to the key beats. His rise via the spreading the word of God's unconditional love and the accumulation of disciples, and his subsequent fall via his branding as a blasphemer by his own people, leading to his crucifixion by the Romans, before diverging into a highly controversial reverie, whereby he hallucinates a much different outcome. Willem Dafoe assumes the admittedly intimidating mantle of Son of God, taking over for Aidan Quinn after the latter passed on Scorsese's reworked version, which reconfigures Jesus as a Jewish carpenter who makes crosses for the Romans. If being reviled by his own people for making the very instruments of their execution wasn't bad enough, he also suffers from debilitating headaches and hears terrifying voices inside his head. Far from the strong, pious image of Jesus seen in a Sunday school textbook, Defoe's portrayal is conflicted and frail. He's always wrestling with his faith and is defined by a fundamental doubt about the divine destiny impressed upon him since birth. 
With the exception of Quinn and Sting in the role of Pontius Pilate, most of the cast Scorsese had assembled back in 1983 would remain on board. Harvey Keitel, absent from the director's frame since Taxi Driver, brings his gruff, self-righteous countenance to the role of Judas, often cast as the vile traitor who gave Jesus up to the Romans, but is recontextualized here as perhaps his most critical ally. With bright red hair matching the inner fire driving his justice-oriented convictions, Judas expresses an unconditional love for his master, pushing Jesus towards the vision of a new, radical interpretation of God that eschews the fire and brimstone of the Old Testament in favor of a deity capable of bottomless compassion. Barbara Hershey, who had initially given Scorsese a copy of the source material on the condition he cast her in an eventual adaptation, finds her arrangement fully satisfied in the pivotal role of Mary Magdalene. Whereas Boxcar Bertha realizes Hershey as youthful and carefree, the last temptation of Christ compels her to channel a hardened world weariness as a biblical-era prostitute and the woman who would become Jesus' wife if he weren't so burdened by the weight of his destiny. Verna Bloom, another of Scorsese's long-term collaborators, most recently seen in a bit role in After Hours, plays the other Mary in Jesus' life, his mother, the Blessed Virgin. A far cry from the saintly, serene image that adorns stained-glass windows and weathered canvases, Bloom's Mary is frail and broken, suffused with the kind of profound grief that any parent might feel at watching the world treat their child in this way. The controversial material further serves to attract notable talent in its bit roles. Victor Argo, a small yet consistent presence throughout Scorsese's work, appears in the plum role of Peter, Jesus' most famous apostle a task that Argo handles with a quiet power even as the narrative offsets his influence in favor of its heavier focus on Judas. Harry Dean Stanton plays Saul, the murderous zealot turned prophet of Christianity, while the Empire Strikes Back director Irving Kirshner pops up as one of Jesus' earliest and most curmudgeonly followers. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. For the pivotal role of the infamous Roman judge Pontius Pilate, Scorsese replaces his initial casting of Sting with another rock icon, David Bowie. Bowie's sinewy, androgynous physicality imbues the well-known biblical figure with an urbane and sophisticated touch. Like Judas, he isn't positioned as the villain that he's usually presented as. He too recognizes Jesus' humanity to a point where one could imagine him passing a very different judgment. But his charge's unbending insistence on a simultaneous divinity ultimately proves a bridge too far for the pragmatic Roman bureaucrat. That he reads as so conflicted at his sentencing of Jesus to death speaks to Scorsese's uncompromising approach to the material, which refuses to reduce his character's three-dimensionality in service to the pageantry of morality play. Indeed, every one of Scorsese's creative and narrative decisions immediately signals that The Last Temptation of Christ isn't your grandfather's biblical epic. It's not even an epic, in the sweeping conventional sense a byproduct of budgetary constraints that compelled the director to adopt more of a direct, grounded approach. Whereas the conventional paradigm would have one believe that biblical figures were walking around the desert talking in British accents, Scorsese's vision allows for the use of his actors' natural accents and vocal inflections, even if it sounds like they just stepped out of a deli in Little Italy. Believe me, those who are laughing now will be crying later. An approach that's incongruous only in the same sense that British accents could exist 1,500 years before the existence of that particular empire, Scorsese's technique works to draw out the truth and immediacy inherent to these characters, using the conceits of documentary to remind us these ancient figures were all too human. 
capable of flaws, mistakes, and misjudgment. This makes the dramatic leap of the titular Last Temptation sequence, in which Jesus receives a vision of an angelic young girl while on the cross, and is coaxed down to live a life of domestic marital bliss with Mary Magdalene, only to discover on his deathbed that he's betrayed his destiny and forsaken his people, all the more sympathetic and meaningful. Scorsese isn't usually regarded as a minimalist. Indeed, the scaled-back ascetic of The Last Temptation of Christ is more of a necessary function of its reduced budget rather than any preconceived artistic intention. That doesn't take away from its effectiveness, however, as a prime example of what Schrader describes in his seminal book Transcendental Style and Film as, quote, an ascetic of paucity, using the most rudimentary conceits of film grammar in a manner that maximizes the effectiveness of its storytelling. As pioneered by early influential filmmakers like Robert Bresson, Yasujiro Ozu, and Carl Theodore Dreyer, this idea is employed throughout The Last Temptation of Christ by equating the simple magic of filmmaking with Jesus' divinity. Splashy visual effects aren't used to depict his miracles. Rather, Scorsese and longtime editing partner Thelma Schoonmaker lean on the humble cut, letting what's implied in the space between two separate shots inform our sense of meaning. Returning cinematographer Michael Ballhouse proves instrumental in Scorsese's desire to make the most of his limited resources. This starts with a collection of meticulously chosen locations, which serve to recreate ancient Jerusalem with a windswept grittiness and tactile immediacy. Though the pair lacked the capacity to drag cumbersome camera equipment out into the remote desert landscapes, they benefit from the presence of the Steadicam, imbuing the 35mm film image, framed in the decidedly non-epic 185 to 1 aspect ratio, was Scorsese's signature flavor of delirious energy. As appropriate for a narrative about faith under duress, the remoteness of Scorsese and company's surroundings forced them to shoot without the benefit of viewing dailies the next day. As recounted to writer Tom Schoen in his comprehensive biography of the director, Scorsese would have to phone Schoonmaker back home and ask her to describe what his footage was looking like. The answer, of course, was that it looked unlike anything he had ever made before a bygone ancient world infused with the urgency and complexity of modernity. A similar approach informs The Last Temptation of Christ's musical palette, fashioned by rock icon Peter Gabriel as a New Age take on the Holy Land's characteristic sound. It's a move akin to taking some of the piss out of the biblical epic genre's conventional stuffiness, a prehistoric antecedent to Phil Spector's wall of sound that would subsequently influence the rise of world music's popularity in pop culture. At the time of its making, The Last Temptation of Christ would position itself as the logical summation of Scorsese's artistic signatures and fascinations. From ancient Rome's point of view, Jesus was a radical subversive to a criminal degree, a seldom emphasized yet inextricable aspect of his history that connects him to the larger rogues gallery of Scorsese protagonists, all of whom are trying to square their religious convictions with the immorality the world requires of them. Throughout his career, he has used Catholic iconography and certain religious hang-ups to externalize his character's inner conflict. The Last Temptation of Christ plugs us directly into the source, substituting his typical community of Roman Catholic Italian-Americans laboring to eke out an existence under the dominance of the Protestant Anglo-Saxon paradigm for a Jewish population scraping by under the watchful, downward-looking gaze of the ancient Roman Empire. In this context, Jesus is seen as a lowlife among lowlifes, a man who, in his occupation as a crossmaker, effectively profits off the persecution of his own people. Scorsese explores his betrayal primarily through the discordant interplay between Jesus and Judas, their conflicting ideologies representing the core sentiments of their respective testaments. Judas's bloodthirsty righteousness representing the Old Testament, 
and Jesus's appeals towards love, acceptance, and forgiveness, suggesting the idea of an altogether new covenant between God and his people. His subsequent crucifixion at the hands of the Romans, to which he voluntarily submits himself as a sacrificial lamb for the greater good of humanity, becomes the genesis for the self-flagellation practiced by Scorsese's lonely men 2,000 years later, their willing submission to pain standing as an admittedly medieval approach to cleansing their cells of sin. Leave it to Scorsese to pepper his biblical epic with postmodern touches befitting his membership in the new Hollywood generation of filmmakers, beginning with the aforementioned reconfiguring of an epic framework into a lower-case character study. A happy accident inherent to the film medium makes for a surprisingly transcendent moment. The final shot finds Jesus in close-up, having returned from his reverie to his dying moments on the cross and gleefully shouting, It is accomplished. As the music builds to a crescendo, the image blooms into a series of colors, implying his glorious entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In reality, however, the effect was the result of a severe light leak occurring in camera, which overexposed the film. A very technical and rational phenomenon, whose timing nonetheless approaches the supernatural in its fortuitousness. Scorsese quite easily could have chosen an alternate take and ended up with a technically pristine end to his passion project, but his embrace of celluloid's inherent vice imbues the last temptation of Christ with palpable life, the Holy Ghost in the machine. Scorsese's passion project, intended as a soulful exploration of his own faith, is regarded even today as one of the most fiercely controversial films ever made, and for good reason. If held deeply enough, a person's religious convictions inform their very identity. A challenge to that worldview, even a well-intentioned one such as Scorsese's, constitutes nothing less than a direct personal attack. Admittedly, a film so bold as to depict Jesus in the act of sexual intercourse is, suffice to say, going to ruffle a few feathers. However, Scorsese was unprepared for the level of outrage directed at his film, and at him personally. There was the usual pearl-clutching and condemnation from religious figures who hadn't bothered to actually see the film, but he couldn't have anticipated some of the more extreme reactions. The evangelist Bill Bright offered to buy the negative with the intent of destroying it. Countries like Greece, Turkey, and Mexico banned the film for several years. It's still banned in Singapore and the Philippines. Blockbuster Video refused to carry the VHS release in its stores. There was even a terrorist attack, carried out by fundamentalist extremists, during a screening of the film in Paris, an arson that injured 13 people and caused major structural damage. Scorsese himself received so many death threats that he was compelled to employ bodyguards at public appearances for several years afterwards. Despite, or perhaps because of, all this venom, The Last Temptation of Christ managed to gross $25 million in worldwide box office receipts, and would subsequently score Scorsese valuable industry recognition in the form of an Oscar nomination for Best Director. As the world has moved on to fresher outrages, Scorsese's hard-fought labor of love has increasingly revealed itself for what it truly is, a surprisingly relevant examination of Jesus' life, taking his teachings to heart while refusing to pander to performative devotion. Though his surprise at the film's fiery opposition might have been a touch naive, his narrative navigation of the thorny subject matter is mature and responsible. The passion and perseverance on display causes The Last Temptation of Christ to endure as a touchstone work in biblical cinema, and by creating an intimate reflection of Jesus as a man, a mere human being full of doubt and fear, Scorsese provides a similar reflection of himself, and a window into an artistic worldview defined by an intimate, probing, and faith-affirming curiosity. Having endured the crucibles of commerce, the artist had been resurrected, and now stood ready to make a new covenant with his audience. 
Thank you for listening to the Director Series. For a deeper dive into your favorite filmmakers, go to www.directorseries.net. The Director Series is made possible in large part by our generous supporters on Patreon. Please visit us at patreon.com backslash director series to see how your contribution enables the continued production of video essays and text articles on your favorite contemporary and classic film directors. Thank you.